0: You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go and meet me in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3. Uh, is where we are going to be today. Uh, I lost my voice this week, uh, and uh, just before the service, I was given a cough drop, and they said, this will turn you from Taylor Swift to Aretha Franklin. Um, I was hoping for Justin Bieber to Johnny Cash or James Earl Jones, uh, but uh, here we are nonetheless. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ethan. I get the great privilege of serving as the pastor uh, here at Central, and I'm so glad that you have uh, chosen to worship with us together this morning, uh, and I hope that today is a great blessing for you. Uh, We want you to know uh, that you are loved here, uh, that you are valued, and uh, that Jesus loves you, and so that's why we're here. I hope that you feel that today. I hope that you have already felt that uh, this morning. There are a few things in life uh, that I don't understand. There are a few things in life that I just, I don't really comprehend. And and there's probably more than a few. There's many things, right? I I took physics in college and it's the only F I've ever gotten. Uh, So there's at least a few things there. Uh, But one of the things that I don't understand uh, are people who jump out of a perfectly good airplane with a backpack on uh, to skydive for fun right? Uh, that just does not sound like a good idea to me. We were, uh, this week I was watching a video with my wife and uh, it was a, a, a girl jumping off of the top of an inflated air balloon uh, just for fun, right? Just, just because she woke up that morning and thought this sounds like it would be a good idea, right? I think she needs to go to the doctor personally. Um, but we, we get it, right? That there are people out there, maybe you're one of them, who you would call yourself an adrenaline junkie, You just, you love roller coasters or jumping out of airplanes or whatever it may be. And and while I I don't have any desire to do that. I still get the, I still get the notion. I still get the longing. I think many of us, maybe even all of us, we have that desire. We have that longing for that next great thing, right? For that, that next exciting experience, that, that next great pleasurable this, that, that next this. Maybe, maybe you live your life constantly looking towards Friday and Saturday. Right? Maybe you're constantly looking towards the weekend or towards the trip or, or towards whatever it may be. Uh, we have this longing inside of us that I think that we, uh, we were given by our creator uh, to want to experience something great, to, to want to experience something wonderful, to, to want to experience something transcendent. The problem is, is we look for those experiences, we look for those things in all of the wrong places, and so here in Ephesians 3, Paul diagnoses this problem, and he, he gives us the solution. He, he gives us the answer to this problem, and it's this, that Jesus' love secures for us more than we can dream. Jesus' love secures for us more than we can dream. So look with me here at Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We're going to read down to verse 21. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Starting in verse 14, the Spirit says to us this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your great grace and your great mercy. Father, thank you for your word that you have given to us and in which you speak to us. And so, Father, we pray now that you would speak to us and you would show us wonderful things from your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. As we look here at Ephesians chapter three, uh, we see this first, that Jesus strengthens us. Jesus strengthens us. There's a truth that runs throughout the scriptures, runs through the the New Testament, runs through the Old Testament. It's a truth that we would do well to learn and we would do well to grasp. And the the earlier that we learn it and the earlier that we grasp it, the the better off we will be. And this is the truth, that you are not enough. We are not enough. I am not enough. I'm not strong enough. I am not great enough. I am not good enough. And neither are you. But here's the good news. Jesus is. Jesus is good enough. Jesus is strong enough. And even better than that, not only is Jesus good enough, not only is Jesus strong enough, but he offers that strength to you and I even today. So here in verse 14, Paul begins this section of his letter to the Ephesians and he begins it in a posture of prayer, because that's really what this passage is. is It's the second prayer uh, that Paul has prayed for the Ephesians so far in this letter. So look with me here at verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, he's already used this phrase, for this reason. If you were to go back to verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says that. He says, for this reason, and he's building off what we have seen in chapter 2 over the last couple of weeks But then he gets sidetracked and instead of building his argument or instead of making his case, what he does is he unpacks the mystery of the gospel. And so here in verse 14, after spending 13 verses unpacking this mystery, he comes back to what he was originally going to say. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father. He takes this posture of prayer and he humbles himself because he understands how great his request is about to be. He humbles himself because he understands the prayer that he is about to pray is a big ask. It is a big prayer, to a, a big request to make. And so he understands who it is that he is coming to pray before. In verse 15, before he makes any request, he just confesses who God is. Look at verse 15. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, this might almost feel like just some filler uh, for Paul. It, It might almost feel like something that we can just glance over or skip over, but that's not the case. See, what Paul is doing here is he's confessing something important about God. This is where all good prayer, all right prayer, all true prayer begins. All good prayer begins not with us or what we need, but it begins with God and who he is. It begins with God and, and what he is like. It, it acknowledges who we are praying to. And this is so important because it orients ourselves, right? It orients us to help us know and help us remember who it is that we're praying to. But then what it also does is it orients our request that we're not coming before a God who is little. We're not coming before a God who is small. We're coming before a majestic and a holy and a glorious God. See, if we're not careful, we will treat prayer like the drive-through window at a fast food restaurant. That we don't really want to spend time with our God. We don't really want to know him We wanna pull up, we wanna tell him what we need and we wanna get out of there as fast as we can. If we're not careful, we'll treat him like a genie in a bottle. That he stays in that bottle until I have a need or or until I have a request and then I'll go to him. And then I'll go there. And you might say, well, Ethan, that's not me. I, I don't treat God like that. Maybe you're familiar with this phrase. I've used it before. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, This is a big phrase, but it's a phrase that was coined by a sociologist, a guy named Christian Smith. Uh, Several years ago in the the late 2000s, uh, him and his research partner, they did a study on, at the time, what did high school students believe? What did they believe about God? What did they believe about heaven? What did they believe uh, about how God relates to his creation? And they came up with that phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, because basically at that time, what evangelical teenagers believed what is, it was that if they were good people uh, who lived a good life, then God didn't really care what else they did. And he was there to answer their prayers, but he wasn't really there for anything else. Now you might say, well, even that's not me. Well, here's the thing. Uh, that, uh, that study was done in the early 2000s. Uh, those teenagers are now adults right? Those teenagers are now mothers and fathers. And my assumption is, is that we might not say it like that, but I think for many of us, sometimes we default to that. Sometimes we default to thinking that God is just kind of our cosmic butler, that he's just there to serve us and to do whatever we need to do. There was a a bumper sticker that was popular several years back that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy right? Jesus is the righteous king, the creator God of the universe, who doesn't exist for us, but we exist for him. And that is the best news for you and me, that we exist for Jesus. And so Paul, he wants us to understand who it is that we're praying to. Who is it that we're coming before that this is the God in whom all of the family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, why does he say that? That's kind of a a strange phrase. Well, there's a theme that runs through the book of Ephesians and it's this theme of one new man. And so Paul's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, but he says, look, understand this. If we keep reading, we'll, we'll see this here in Ephesians, that there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is not either slave nor free. There is now one new man who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So, what this means is you are either in Christ or you are not. You are either saved or you are not. And so, now our, uh, our identity is based not on our ethnic heritage, but on who we believe God is and what we believe Jesus has done. It's no longer ethnic, it's now theological. And so the reason that Paul says here, this God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named is because this idea of naming, it's an idea that runs through scripture. And what it does is it shows that our God has the right to form and to shape our identity. And so our identity is not in who we are or in what we've done, our identity is in what God says about us. And so God says that you are either hidden in Christ or you are apart from Christ. Now in verse 16, we get to the first petition, the the first ask, the the first prayer. Look at verse 16, he says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So this first petition is that the Ephesians would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit uh, according to the riches of his glory. That word riches, it's used four times in the book of Ephesians. it means plentiful supply. So Paul's prayer is that because God's resources are unlimited, because he has a plentiful supply, he can share his strength without losing anything. So Paul prays here that that believers would be strengthened by God's spirit according to the riches of his glory. And so what he's saying is that because of these riches, that That God doesn't give something to his people and then lack something in himself. No, that God's glory is great enough and his power is strong enough and his might is good enough that he can give to us, he can strengthen us with his glory without ever losing anything of himself. without ever losing anything at all. It it would be like Elon Musk giving a million dollars to a charity, we would say, man, that is great. I I can't even begin to fathom giving away a million dollars. But for Elon Musk giving away a million dollars, it's like me giving 10 cents, right? It's just not that impressive. Because he has an abundant supply. The same thing is true of our God. He can give us his riches of his glory and not lack anything and yet completely fill us up. And so the the question that we ask is, what kind of strengthening is this? Or maybe why do we need to be strengthened? Well, we're strengthened to remain firm in commitment to following Jesus. Now, where does this strength come from? The strength comes from the spirit working in the hearts of his people. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory, that he would grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So we stand firm in following Jesus, not because we're great and we're strong, but because the spirit works in us. The, the reason that we can follow Jesus, the reason that we can stand firm, the, the reason we can keep going isn't because we've got it figured out, but it's because the spirit is strong and mighty. And so what that means is that, that maybe you've had a really rough week this week. Maybe you have struggled this week. Maybe, maybe you've gotten bad news or, or, or maybe it has just been one of those weeks that has just been difficult. Well, what that means is that, that you following Jesus... You don't have to worry, am I going to be able to make it? Because Jesus holds you fast. Because it's the spirit that's at work in you. You don't have to wonder, is God going to hold me? Well, if you've been saved, if you have been forgiven, if you have been redeemed, then what that means is that the Holy Spirit of God is already at work in you and through you. And so whenever you struggle and whenever you suffer, you can struggle and you can suffer. It sounds strange, but you can struggle with confidence. You can suffer with confidence because the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you, is alive in you. But what this also means is that whenever you have a really good day, when you wake up early, you read your Bible, you kiss your husband or your wife on the way out the door, you wave at the person who cuts you off, you share the gospel with your coworker and you come home and read your Bible again. Do you know what got you through that day? The Spirit Right? The Holy Spirit at work in you. It wasn't because you had been a really good Christian that day. The only reason you had been a really good Christian that day is because the Holy Spirit of God was at work, active in your heart and in your life to accomplish in you what he would have. This is true on your good days and on your bad days. The Spirit is at work and alive in you. Jesus is strengthening you. See, Jesus' love secures for us more than we could dream. It it secures his strength. But next we see this, that, that Jesus fills us. You know, it's terrible to be empty and to not know it, isn't it? See, the problem is, is that oftentimes we don't realize just how empty we are until we run out of gas. I'm convinced that my wife's van knows when I'm gonna be the one driving it, right? Because that seems to be the only time it needs gas. Now, I'm not saying she plans it that way. I'm just saying I think she does, Uh, the, the, The only time that she needs gas is whenever I'm gonna be the one driving it. It's terrible to be empty and to not know that you're empty. See, here in these next few verses, Paul gives us a picture of our emptiness by showing how Jesus can fill us. Look at verse 17. Just look at the first two words, so that. Now you can circle those words, you can highlight those words, you can underline those words. Here's what you need to know about those two words, so that. Anytime you see so that in the New Testament, those are words of action and result action and purpose, action and manner. So what that means is whenever you read so that, that means that there has been an action that has taken place beforehand. Something has been said, something has been done beforehand and now you're seeing the result, you're seeing the purpose, you're you're seeing the manner. And so the action here in this is verse 16, that we would be strengthened according to the riches of his glory through his spirit in our inner beings. Why or what's the purpose, what's the result? Well, the first is that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. See, why are we being strengthened by the Spirit? We're being strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts. Now remember, we believe in the Trinity. We're Trinitarians. In fact, in this passage, we've already seen the three persons of the Trinity at work, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so whenever we read this about Christ dwelling in our hearts, but then we've also just read in verse 16 about the Spirit working in our inner beings, don't think that, that that's two different things. That's one in the same. This is why in Romans 8, uh, Paul will refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. As if the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, uh, all the same thing. And so uh, Paul here, he's saying that you're being strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is an important truth about the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is devoted to making the presence and the power of Jesus real in those whom he dwells. So the the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does is to make the presence and the power of Jesus real in your life right now, real in your life today. This power from verse 16, it it comes to the indwelling of Christ that we see here in verse 17. See, our great need as Christians is to be filled with the presence of Christ. Our our great need as Christians isn't to experience some other thing. It's not to have this or that. Our great need is Jesus. When you have Jesus, what else do you need? When you have Jesus living and active inside of you, you don't need anything else. And so how does Christ dwell in our hearts? Well, Paul says here through faith. Now this faith that he's talking about, this isn't a general faith, a general faith is, yeah, I think it's probably all gonna work out at some point. A general faith is, I think the weatherman's report is probably right, but I'm not sure. A a general faith is a faith that is disinterested. It's a faith that is uninvolved. It's a faith that, that doesn't really demand anything, that doesn't really do anything. But the faith that that Paul is talking about here is a specific faith that embraces Christ. I I love the way Calvin said it. He said, faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. That's what we're invited to. We're invited to warmly and seriously embrace Christ. I, I wonder if you have done that. Have you embraced Christ? Or are you keeping him at, his, at an arm's length? Is your faith in Jesus in a warm embrace? Or is your faith in Jesus as a card that you keep in your back pocket as some fire insurance? See, what Paul is calling us to here is not disinterested weak, cheap faith. He's calling us to strong faith. He's calling us to serious faith. He's, he's calling us to specific faith. And so the, the end of verse 17 on end of verses 18 and 19, we see the result of Christ indwelling for the believer. First, it's that we're rooted and grounded in love. That's the way he ends verse 17 means that we are fixed and secure. See, love is the natural result of Christ working in you. And so if you wanna know, is Christ working in me? The question that I would, I would encourage you to ask yourself is, am I more loving today than I was before? Am I on a trajectory of loving people more or am I remaining stagnant? Am I remaining the same? Or heaven forbid, am I loving people less? See, if Christ is at work in you, if Christ is at work through you, then what that means is that you're going to love people more, not less. That you're going to be patient with people more, not less. That you're going to sacrifice more, not less. So that's the fruit of Christ working in you. But there's a, a second fruit. Verses 18 and 19, that Christ empowers us to know how great this love is. Look at verse 18. That we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth. And the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Christ empowers us to know just how great His love is. In verse 18, we get this picture of how great and vast Christ's love is. What's happening in this passage is Paul is building a case. He's working towards a crescendo, he, he's working towards a climax. And in verse 18, he he says that we would have the strength to comprehend what all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. What he's saying is, is that God's love is uncontainable. It's immeasurable. It's more than we can fathom. It's more than we can imagine. And then in verse 19, he, he says that Christ dwelling in us gives us the ability to know the love that surpasses understanding. Verse 19, he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, we come to know the unknowable. We are filled with the fullness of God. <clears throat> That's what Christ does in us and for us and through us. And this is really, this is one of the great desires of the human heart, is it not? One of the great desires as people made in the image of God, is to one, experience love, and then to two, display love. All right, so, so it's a both and, that we would experience love, but then also that we would give love or that we would show love. And see, sin takes this and distorts it and ultimately goes back to this desire for love, but what it does is it disorders our loves. And so what happens is we begin loving the wrong things in the wrong ways. And when we love the wrong things in the wrong ways, instead of finding joy, we get slavery. Instead of finding freedom, we get bondage. Now, how does that happen? How does that work? What happens whenever we start to look at things and think, I can't live without them? If that thing was taken from you or it doesn't meet your expectation, does it leave you broken? When you start to see the money running low, what what happens? When the buzz of alcohol or of drugs or whatever it is, when it starts to wear off, And your next thought is, okay, well, where am I going to get the next thing? Where am I going to get the next thing? Where am I going to get the next buzz? When that relationship ends and and you don't know what to do. See, oftentimes what happens is disordered loves leads to what we would call today addiction. Now, for many of us, we know the pain of addiction, right? We know the reality of addiction. Maybe we know it personally because we've experienced or maybe we have a, a loved one who knows it. But for some of us, Maybe it would say, even that, that might be true, but, but I don't deal with addiction. I, I don't struggle with addiction. Well, the more I think about addiction, the more I am convinced uh, that we might not want to admit it, but that many of us, maybe even all of us struggle with addiction. We just find something different to call it because it's a respectable addiction, right? It, it, it's a respectable problem. So like, I have no problem admitting, you know what? I think I might be addicted to Coke Zero, but that's none of your business, right? I tell my wife, like, I'll quit tomorrow if I want to, right? Maybe it's something like that, but, but I, would, I would wager that for many of us, maybe even most of us, it's something completely different. Some of us say, well, I just work really hard. Well, maybe it's not that you work really hard. Maybe it's, addic- it's that you're addicted to your work because you don't want to deal with what the rest of your life is like. Maybe, maybe say, hey, I, I watch the, the news all the time because I want to know what's going on in the world. Maybe it's just that you like knowing what the next thing is that you're supposed to be outraged about. And that gives you a, a, a joy that, that you can't stop. Maybe maybe it's that, that relationship that you you know isn't healthy, it's not good, but you just feel like you can't walk away. And maybe that's a habit. See, I think for, for many of us that that we deal with these addictions, we have just found something different to call it you know, the Bible has a word for this. The Bible doesn't refer to addiction. The Bible refers to idolatry. That that we take things and we turn them into little gods. And and how do you know if something is a little god? Well, I think there's a couple ways to know if it's a little god. What is something that, that maybe you can't imagine not having tomorrow? What is something that you, you can't imagine your life without? I think one of the most helpful diagnostic questions for me when I, I try to identify idols in my life is this is, what do you daydream about? When you don't have anything else to think about, where does your mind go? That doesn't mean that that's definitely an idol, but it could be. It's certainly a, a question worth asking. See, when our loves become disordered, when we start loving the wrong things in the wrong way, we, we end up in slavery, we end up in bondage, we end up addicted to all of the wrong things. And so that might be the problem, but how do we fix it? How, how do we free ourselves from this addiction? Maybe you've been fighting against this sin for years. You don't want to do it. Maybe you can say like Paul says in Romans 7, what I want to do, I do not do. And what I do not want to do, I do. This wretched man that I am, why am I like this? Maybe you can identify with that. Well, well, how, how do you do it? How do you fight against? How do you resist? How do you have victory over this sin? I was reading this week an article and the article started out with this question if you had a glass beaker and you were in a lab that had all of the equipment, all the tools that you needed, how would you get all of the air out of the beaker? And the article went on to explain how you could construct this environment and you could build this vacuum and you've got to make sure that you get just the right amount of suction and the right amount of this on the beaker. And then you've got to turn the vacuum on and it would take a little while, but you could suck the air out of the beaker. But the article at the end said, but there is a much simpler way. If you wanna get the air out of the beaker, fill it with water. If you wanna get the sin out of you, if you want to get the addiction out of you, if you wanna have victory over that sin, the key is not to focus on the addiction or on the sin. The key is to focus on Christ, right? This is what the, the Puritans, they they... Thomas Chalmers, he was a Puritan. He, he wrote a, it was a sermon turned into a book. You can find it online for free. The expulsive power of a new affection. Right? That whenever we start to love this more than we love that, then we have victory over that. So when we start to love Jesus more than we love our sin, then we have victory over our sin. Right? When we start to love Jesus more than we love all of these other things, then we start to have victory over this thing or that thing. Now, understand, this is not an overnight fix. Right? This isn't something that, hey, you know what? I'm going to love Jesus more than I love that, and now I'm going to be free. I'm going to love Jesus more than I love porn, and so now everything's going to be okay. Now, this is a fight because understand this. Satan does not want you to have victory over sin, right? He is an enemy for a reason. And so he fights against all of that, making sure that, that every stumbling block, every roadblock is in your way. But here's what we also know. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? And so what this means is that this spirit that's living inside of us, that's, that's strengthening us and that's filling us, this spirit of Christ, that's the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And so if, That spirit can defeat sin and death. That spirit can defeat sin and death in you, right? That that, that is our hope as believers. That's our hope as Christians. And so we see that Jesus strengthens us and Jesus fills us. And finally, we see this, that Jesus amazes us. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were amazed by Jesus? When was the last time your life was stopped because Jesus is glorious. When was the last time your thinking was affected because Jesus is great? That's how Paul stops this passage. That's how he ends this passage. We've said that this passage is really working towards a, Christianity, it's working towards a high point and verses 20 and 21 are that high point. Look at verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Paul understands what he has just prayed. These things that he's asked for in verses 16 and 17 and 18 and 19, these are not small things. They might feel familiar or simple, but they are not. In fact, I would argue this, that if If the feeling of your inner being, the the feeling of you with the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of you, if that feels small, if that feels insignificant, if that feels simple, that might be proof that you have been inoculated to the New Testament right, that you have grown familiar and comfortable with the words of Scripture. And I think we should be familiar with the words of Scripture, but God protect us from ever being comfortable with the words of Scripture, or from ever taming what Jesus says, ever taming what Paul has to say. It might feel feel familiar or simple, but it's not. This prayer for the, the presence and the power of Jesus is a big prayer, A prayer that our lives would be marked by the power that rose Jesus from the grave. This is not a little prayer. And so Paul feels the weight of what he's prayed. He he feels what he's prayed for. And so he reminds us and he reminds himself of who he is praying to. Now to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or dream. When I read about this, now to him who is able, who is this him? Where my mind goes is to the great I am, right? He's the one who can speak through a burning bush, who can free his people from slavery, who can part the Red Sea, who can make manna rain down from heaven. He's the one who can do it all. And how do we know he can do it all? Because he has done it all, right? And he does do it all. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or dream. That word abundantly means quite above all measurable. So the one who can do the immeasurable, in other words, what this means is we can't ask him for too much. Paul has asked for a great blessing, but he knows that he has a great God. So what Paul asked for here, it might feel like a lot that we would be filled with the spirit of Christ, that he would work in us and through us, but for God, it isn't that much at all. So you understand this, that God's capacity for answering our prayers always exceeds our capacity for dreaming up prayers to pray. God's capacity for answering your prayer is greater than any prayer you have ever prayed, greater than any ask you have ever made. Maybe some of you in here are dreamers. Maybe you you dream big. You've got the entrepreneurial bent. Uh, You've you've never met an opportunity that you don't like. You're always thinking through a way that you could monetize this or you could do that or, or this business idea or that opportunity. And there are some people in this room that you make them nervous right, that they they prefer to live with their feet firmly planted on the ground. You kind of live in the clouds with all of these great ideas. No one can dream bigger than you. Here's what we've got to understand is that you can't out-dream and out-pray God. See, our asks are never too much for him. We never have to pray a prayer and wonder, can God do this? We never have to pray a prayer and wonder, man, is this too much for him to handle? Because even the greatest things that we see in our lives are just a prick, a pinprick of what God can do, right? Just a small sample of what God can do. These great things that we see him do in our lives or we see him do in the world are really him saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? I can do greater, I I can do more, And so Paul ends this passage answering the the how and the why questions. Well, how does God do all of this? Look at verse 20. According to the power at work within us. Understand this, that if we want God to do something great in our lives, we don't need anything else than what we already have. That in Christ, we have all that we need at work in us to accomplish all that God would have for us. And so maybe you wonder, well, God's going to do something great in my life. If God's going to do something great in my family, then, then I need a little bit more. I need something new. I need this. I need that. But, but here's what you need to understand is that if you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, if you have been forgiven, then you have all that you need for God to do something great in your life. And then maybe the question is, well, why isn't God doing these great things in my life? Maybe the reason God isn't doing great things in your life is because you look longer at your sin than you look at Jesus. Maybe the reason God doesn't do great things in your life or the way he doesn't act the way that you would like him to, to move the way that you would like him to move is because you are more in love with sin than you are with Jesus. And so you have, what Paul says in another place, quenched the spirit at work in your life. So we have everything that we need at work in us. How does he do it? He he does it through the power that's already at work in us. The next question is, well, why does God do all of this? We see it in verse 21. He does it for his own glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We might read that and we might think, was he just trying to project this image? No, he's not trying to project an image. This is actually grace for us. He, He wants to be glorified in the church and throughout all generations, because he wants his church to see him for who he really is. He wants his church to understand just how great and how strong and how mighty he is. He doesn't want us to operate with a small view of who he is. He wants us to to operate with a great view of who he is. He wants to operate with a strong view of who he is. This is God's grace to us. See, Jesus's love secures for us more than we could ever dream. And so our great need today is to be filled with Jesus. Maybe you're one, you'd say, hey, I've been following Jesus. I've been walking with Jesus, but I just don't really feel very filled with Jesus today. Well, the reason that you might not be filled with Jesus today is not a problem with Jesus, but it's a problem with you, right? Maybe it's that you have grown bored with Jesus, Maybe the reason you don't feel, feel very filled with Jesus isn't because Jesus has walked away from you, but maybe it's because you have walked away from him. Maybe it's because you have filled yourself with everything else other than Jesus, other than the one who really can fill you. And so maybe this morning, what the Lord is calling you today is to see the things that you have filled your life with other than Jesus, and to confess those things and to to turn from those things and to to give those things over to the Father, to to let him have them and and to pray and to plead and to ask that that he would take these things so that you can have more of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe this morning, you need to be filled with Jesus for the first time. Maybe you need to experience his grace. You need to experience his filling. You need to experience his love for the first time, even now. If you you need someone to pray with you, our Next Steps team will be right down front. They would love to pray with you. If you need to talk with someone about, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be filled by Jesus? And with Jesus, they'll be down here. They would love to talk with you and they would love to pray with you. But don't leave here without knowing and understanding this, that your great need, my great need today is that we would experience more and more of Jesus and less and less of what the world around us has to offer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, thank you for your goodness. or thank you for Jesus who fills us. And so Father, I pray this morning that we would, we would know what it means to be filled by Jesus. That we would, we would know what it means to experience his spirit at work in us, that we would know what it means to to know his love, to know his grace. So Father, I pray that, that you would make all of these other things that we attempt to fill ourselves with, that you would make all of them unattractive. You would make them all unlovely. Father, instead, you would focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus. Father, we pray that you would do it now. So in Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.